But if you'll take your Bible and stand and go to three passages with me, two of them I think will be on the screen. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7. As soon as you find it, go to Hebrews chapter 9. And then as soon as you find it, go to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're having a little sword drill this morning here. Okay, Ephesians 1, Hebrews 9, and 1 Peter 1. Okay. Join me as we read God's Word together. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse number 7. In whom we have redemption, referring to Jesus Christ, of course. In whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of of sins according to the riches of His grace. And then in the book of Hebrews, chapter number 9, Hebrews 9 and verse number 12, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by His own blood, He entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. You probably have noticed now that both of those passages mention the word redemption. Now I want you to go to a third one. Keep turning to the right, just a couple of books here, and to the book of 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter number 1 and verse 18. 1 Peter 1 and 18. For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things, like silver and gold, from the vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. All three of those passages have the word redemption. All three of those passages have the word blood. And so our subject today deals with redemption, the the prophecies of the Messiah Redeemer. Thank you, and you may be seated. Now, last Sunday, I preached on the coming Messiah. I showed you over 30 verses of Scripture that indicate that one day a Messiah King would come to Israel, and we looked at those verses of Scripture, prophetic passages all, and those verses describe to us what the Messiah, the coming Messiah, the Jews would be like. And so that was just a message, a general prophecy of the Messiah. Today we're going to focus on the fact that when the Messiah comes, He will be a Redeemer. And in doing that, we will deal with one of the most important doctrines of the Christian faith. And that doctrine is the doctrine of redemption. Now, let me begin by telling you a story, and it's an old story. In fact, every preacher probably that ever preached that was a Bible-centered preacher probably told this story. I understand it was a true story. I believe it was set in Holland in the Netherlands and 100 years ago or so. And here's what happened. There was a father, a young man, And he had a wood shop in the back of his home. He liked to carve little things and make little figures and so on and give them to his friends. And the Lord gave him and his wife a little boy. 
The little boy was about four or five years old, and the father thought, for this year for Christmas, I'm going to make him a little sailboat. There's a canal right in front of our house, and he will so enjoy having that little boat and sailing his little boat in the canal. And so the father went to work in his wood shop, and he took the saws and hammers and chisels, and he made this beautiful, beautiful little sailboat about this big. He cut the canvas and put the sails on it. Christmas morning, it was under the Christmas tree. His little boy was so thrilled with it. It became his favorite toy. That's all he would do is, is if the weather permitted, he would be down at the canal, and he would be sailing his little sailboat. And one day, as little boys do, he forgot to bring the boat back with him. And over the night, the current in the canal carried the little sailboat away, and he went down to get it the next morning, and it was gone. The little boy cried. It, would, it broke his heart. And day after day, he looked for that sailboat. It was nowhere to be found. And so one day, his father took him downtown to the little, little, little village, really, but it had a toy store. And as they approached the toy store, the little boy's eyes lit up. Daddy, there is my sailboat in the window of that toy store. They couldn't believe it. They looked at the little boat, and they went in, and they began to talk with the proprietor. And he said, well, one day a man came in. He said he had found this, that it had come down the canal, and he offered to sell it to me. And I bought it and put it up for sale, knowing it's a beautiful little boat. Some child would be thrilled with it. And the father said, how much? And the proprietor told him the amount. And he paid the amount. And the little boy put that sailboat in his arms. He cradled it. And they walked out the door. And the little boy looked up at his daddy. And he said, Daddy, the little boat now is mine twice, isn't it? You made it for me. And now you bought it back for me when I lost it. That is the best illustration I've ever heard of what redemption is. Redemption means to buy something back. The technical definition of it is to regain possession of something by paying a price. To regain possession of something that you've lost by paying a price. That price is called the redemption price. Sometimes it's called a ransom. And the doctrine of redemption is a key keystone doctrine of our Christian faith. God created us. He made us like the man made the sailboat. And God gave us dominion over the entire creation. He said, I want you to reproduce, and I want you to have dominion over everything that I've made in my creation. You know the story. Man fell. He fell from his God-given position of dominion. And we know that man chose to obey Satan rather than God who had been so good to him. And because man obeyed Satan, we call that sin. He violated God's one command to him. And that sin alienated man and all of his descendants, you, me. It alienated us from Almighty God because of sin. God is a holy God. He cannot countenance. He cannot accept the least sin because of his own purity and his own holiness. And so man was lost 
When we use that word, we mean lost in sin. We mean lost to the privileges that God originally had for him, lost to the blessings of God upon his life. Lostness involves many different, uh, different facets, if you will. And so man is lost, and he has one great need, just like that little sailboat in the story I told you. The only way that sailboat could ever come back to its rightful owner was through someone paying a price, a redemptive price. And the only way you and I can return to God is that a price must be paid. Jesus said it like this in Mark 10 and 45 in your Bible. Jesus said, the Son of Man came not to be ministered to, but to minister and to give his life a what? A ransom, a ransom for many. Why did he use the word ransom? Because a ransom is the price that we pay in redemption sometimes. If you pawn your watch at a pawn shop, you have to go and you have to pay a price, a ransom to get that back. And throughout so many different illustrations I could give you about redemption, you think, for example, of a, of a kidnapping. Someone is kidnapped or they're held hostage. And in order for us to get them back, we have to pay a ransom, a redemption fee. And we know in the Christian sense that Jesus Christ paid that ransom. Now, here's the thing. Listen to me. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, you are not your own. Boy, that flies in the face of everything Americans believe today. We are taught that we're the big eye. We're taught it's all about me. And we're taught I get to do anything I want. Well, if you're an unsaved person, that's, that's, that's a good philosophy for you. That's the only thing you know. But I'm a Christian, and I was made by God. I was made in him, His image. I belonged to Him once through creation. But number two, He sent His Son once I had sinned to be my Redeemer. And he purchased me with his rich, red, royal blood when he poured out every drop of it on the cross for my redemption. I belong to God, and you do too if you're a Christian, twice. He has double ownership on me. I am his because he created me. I am his because he redeemed me. He bought me back by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are 333 prophecies regarding the Messiahship of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. Last week, I shared with you about 30 of those, 30 different prophecies that said a Messiah is going to come. He'll be born of a virgin. He will be born in Bethlehem. It told us where he was born, when he would be born, the circumstances of his birth. If you weren't here, I would sure like for you to get a copy of that and look at it on YouTube or Facebook or wherever. But it's a, it's a Bible study on the prophecies relating to the coming Messiah. Now, today, this message builds on that, and this is the prophecies that relate to Him as our Redeemer. And of all the needs that mankind has, the greatest need that we have is our need for redemption, I believe. 
As I was preparing this, I had my desk full of books and Bibles and commentaries and my computer out, and I'm studying. And I looked over on the corner of my desk in a magazine that I receive every month. It's called World Magazine, W-O-R-L-D, World Magazine. It's a Christian magazine. I've taken it for a number of years. Every year, World Magazine, about this time of the year, selects one book of all the Christian books that were published in the country, and they take that one book and they make it the book of the year, and they give you a a review of it and encourage you to get it if you don't have it and so on. And this year they did something really strange. Their book of the year is a book that was published 100 years ago, 100 years ago in 1923. The book was written by a man named J. Gresham Macon, J. Gresham Macon. And the book is entitled Christianity and Liberalism, and it's being republished in its original form after 100 years, which is extremely unusual for any book. Who cares about a book that was written 100 years ago other than the Bible, huh? But J. Gresham Macon's book, which is a landmark book, in theology, Christianity and liberalism. Let me tell you some about that because it ties right in with this idea of redemption. J. Gresham Macon was a professor at Princeton University Seminary in the 1920s. And in the 1920s, liberalism, theological liberalism, came in and invaded the mainland denominations of America Many, if not most of the churches became liberal in their theology. By liberal, I mean they denied certain basics that are essential to Christianity. They denied that Jesus was born of a virgin. They denied that his miracles actually happened. They were more sleight of hand type things or imaginations of the people. They denied even some of them his physical and literal resurrection from the grave. And uh, they denied basic things. They denied the inspiration and infallibility of the Scripture, all basic things that we believe and hold to. So J. Gresham Macon said, I'm going to counter these liberal arguments. And he was a great intellect, a great renowned Christian of that day. And so in his book, he wrote a chapter on what the Bible teaches about God and what liberals believe about God. He wrote a chapter on what the Bible says about sin, and then he countered what liberals believe about sin. He did that with key points, with God, with Christ, with sin, with salvation, with the church, with a whole number of topics. He took them and he compared what the Bible teaches and what liberalism taught. And boy, that book was a blockbuster in the United States at that time among Christian people. And basically, here's what he said. Macon said, at every point, liberalism is in direct opposition to true Christianity. He said, liberals believe in the universal fatherhood of God. They believe in the universal brotherhood of man, both of which directly conflict with the Scripture. He wrote, liberals claim to admire Jesus' character and his ethical standards, but they reject his claims of deity, his miracles, and of man's need of atonement for sin. 
In other words, the essence of liberalism, and listen to me, because I want you to not be able to recognize it. The essence of liberalism is that man is, is intrinsically good, that man is not a fallen being, that man doesn't have to sin because his nature pushes him in that direction. Liberalism says that man is essentially good at his nature and that the problem is the environment. And if we can educate him properly or if we can give him enough resources and pull him out of his poverty, that kind of thing, that man will be okay. That, that crime and sin and evil come about because primarily of man's environment. It's not that man is intrinsically evil. And so uh, Machen wrote this. And he said, you claim as liberals to admire Jesus Christ, but the Christ that you admire is not the Christ of the Scriptures, of the Bible. Now, if you think about that, that's exactly what's going on. That's why this book was republished and why I think World Magazine is promoting it as their book of the year. You see, because today, what is it that the woke movement is teaching? It's saying that basically people are not that bad. It's that people, that we've got to change the environment. That if we could have social justice in this country, that much of these other problems would go away. That crime is caused because of injustice and things like that. And so they've, they, they have deified man and they've humanized God. They brought God down and elevated man. And the consequence is, what you see happening in religious circles today and what you see even happening in the larger society. The Bible says unequivocally, Romans 3 and 23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And I could stack on another 20 verses that would make that same point. Machen also wrote this in his book. He says, liberalism makes Jesus a mild-mannered exponent of non-discriminating love. <laughs> That's a lot of big words, but boy, how true. Liberalism makes Jesus a mild-mannered exponent of undiscriminating love. In other words, the only quality you ever hear about with Jesus among the liberals is his love. It's the only quality he has. He is a one-dimensional personality. He loves. And that's all you hear about. Well, in the Bible, we know that Jesus Christ and Almighty God are the essence of love. God is love. Jesus poured out his love. On the other hand, we know that they are also proponents of judgment and of justice as well as love. And so liberalism presents a wrong view of Jesus. To the liberal, the cross, and I'm saying this because I want you to recognize liberalism. To the liberal, the cross is merely an example of self-sacrifice and God's love. To the Christian, it is all of that, but more importantly, it is Jesus dying in our place as our substitute, suffering the penalty for the sins that we deserve to pay for. Machen argued that Christianity is based on real history. He said real Christianity is based on real history and real doctrine. And then he delineated that, number one. He said, Christ died. That's a fact of history. Christ died for our sins. Ah, that's sound doctrine. That's the basis of redemption. That's the basis of our salvation. 
And then he said this, and it's so important, such a succinct statement of who we are and what we want to be as a church. If sin, he said, is so trifling a matter, as the liberal church supposes, then indeed the curse of God's law can be taken very lightly. And God can easily let bygones be bygones. But if God is holy and sin is as the Bible describes it, the state of the sinner is desperate. End of quote. What a statement. And listen to me today. If you're not saved and you're sitting in this building or you're watching somewhere on television or the Internet, let me say this to you. You may be as comfortable as you could be as a bug in a rug, as my mother used to say. You can have money stacked up in the bank, and the doctor just told you last week that you're in glowing health. Everything can be great for you, but I want to tell you, your situation is desperate. If you don't know God, your situation is desperate if you have not been redeemed. I don't care how comfortable you are. In fact, that's the big problem in America. We're so comfortable. If there was a way to make people uncomfortable about their spiritual state, well, I'd sure be for it. If God is holy and sin is what the Bible says it is, the state of everybody outside of Jesus Christ is absolutely a state of desperation. You're desperate. You need the Lord. You need redemption. Machen, to his credit, well, not to his credit, they fired him. He wrote that book, Princeton Seminary, fired him. In our terms, he was canceled. <laughs> they canceled him for writing what true Christianity is about, showing how far they had departed from it even 100 years ago. And he started what is called the Orthodox Presbyterian denomination. And there's at least one of our local churches, I think the church in Effingham down here, Presbyterians, I think they're Orthodox Presbyterians, meaning we're people that still believe the Bible. The Bible is the basis of what we, what we are. And he left Princeton, of course, and he started Westminster Seminary. Now, that's, that was a big, that was the headline news for about 10 years back in the 1920s. But here's the significance. That battle is still going on today. It's ebbed and it's flowed and it's cooled off and it's heated up. But the battle goes on today. Today it's called the woke philosophy coming into our churches. A man-centered message of social justice is not Christianity. Hear me. A man-centered message of social justice is not Christianity. It's another religion using the name of Christianity. It's not biblical Christianity. And as a pastor, I feel compelled to teach my flock so they recognize these danger signals. Now, back to the theme. I took a little, a big detour, but it was a planned detour here because I now want you to get your Bible with me and we're going to look at about 30 more scriptures here in a few minutes, and I'm going to go fast. But I'm going to show you that blood redemption is the message of the Bible about redemption. I'm going to show you 
prophecies that foretold long ago that a Messiah Redeemer would come and what would and and how he would achieve redemption for us primarily by his work at the cross. In the book of Psalms, number one, verse Psalms 41 and verse 9, it predicted a thousand years before Jesus came that he would be betrayed by a friend, my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. And in Psalm number 55, it says, it was not an enemy that reproached me, but a man my equal, my acquaintance. We walked together into the house of God, and yet he betrayed me. Number two, in Zechariah chapter 11 and verse 12, of course, that betrayal was by Judas and it was prophesied a thousand years prior. In Zechariah 11 and 12, it said that he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Now, if you're a skeptic about the inspiration of the Bible, just tell me how things like that keep showing up in the Bible. Five, six hundred, seven hundred years before Christ lived, the prophet looked forward. God inspired him to write that they are going to, that the Messiah is going to be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. It gave the amount of the betrayal price. And then we go to Psalm 22. And I gave you those two, but now I want you to turn with me to Psalm number 22 in your Bible. And I'm going to give you 10 of those prophecies out of one passage of Scripture, okay? And so you get your Bible. You might want to get your pen out as well. Psalm number 22 and verse 1 the words that Christ had in his mind as he hung on the cross, no doubt he had memorized them from the psalm. And in Psalm number 22 and verse 1, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Do this. Take your pen and right there by Psalm number 22, the heading in your Bible, write 1000 B.C., 1000 B.C., an entire millennium before Christ ever came to the earth, David wrote these words, and they're the words that Christ quoted on the cross. If you will look, and, and so Christ, feeling forsaken by God because he was bearing the sins of the world, he, he quotes the scripture. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me in his state? of aloneness there on the cross. Go with me to verse 6. I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men, and despised of the people. They that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out their lips. They shake their heads. They mock me and say, trusted in the Lord that he would deliver him. Well, let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. And so he describes the jeering crowd and their behavior as they encircle the cross that day. Josephus said about 3,000 people watched the crucifixion. And he's describing that crowd. Verse 12, many bulls have compassed me. Strong bulls of Bashan have beset me. A reference to leaders. They gaped upon me with their mouths as a ravening and a roaring lion. And so in verses 12 and 13, he describes the hatred of those leaders, those religious leaders primarily, who engineered and manipulated events to create the crucifixion, and their feelings of apparent 
triumph over him as they stood around the cross and they jeered at him and ridiculed him. And then we go to verse 14 and verse 15. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. It's a key phrase in your prophetic literature. You see, when Jesus Christ was hanging on the cross, do you remember the soldiers came around to inspect the, 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 the people hanging there, the victims? And they took a mallet, as was their habit. This was typical of crucifixion. They took a hammer and they hit the victims on the shin and broke that shin bone because when people were crucified, they actually died partially from suffocation. And they're hanging here and their feet are propped there on a little outcropping from the, the cross. And they're standing there, as it were, and they began to weaken with blood loss and they began to breathe here and they have to push themselves up. <gasps> like that, and then they breathe out, and then they push themselves back up as they need more air. Well, they could hang there for two or three days. It was awful. It was the worst cruel form of, of execution that man could invent. So what they would do, the Roman soldiers, in order to hurry up and get home, they would crack the, the bone here below the knee. And now with that bone broken, they couldn't push up anymore, and they would be in this position, and they would die of suffocation. But do you remember the story in the Bible? The executioners came, and they were going to break the bones of our Lord. And what did they say? He's already dead. This one is already dead. No sense doing that. And they went on to the next one. And they didn't know it. They were fulfilling a prophecy from a thousand years past. Verse 14, all my bones are out of joint, but they're not broken. And so if you read this now, all of this, it describes the agonies of a crucifixion. In verse 15, my tongue cleaveth to my mouth, to my jaws. Do you remember what Jesus said on the cross? I thirst. And crucifixion created this uh, dehydration because of the heat, the stress, the, the blood loss. And so this passage prophesies his tongue cleaving to his jaws. Dogs have compassed me, the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Underline that. They pierced my hands and my feet. Tell me what other form of execution pierces the hands and the feet. It's not hanging. It's not stoning. It's not electrocution. It's one thing. It's a crucifixion being vividly described prophetically a thousand years before it even occurs. The normal procedure was to break the bones. But I want you to go quickly over to Psalm 34. I'm about to get ahead of myself here. And I want you to look in Psalm number 34 and down about verse 20. Another prophecy, he keepeth all his bones, not one of them is broken. Do you see the marvel of the Scripture? 
Do you see the evidences now of inspiration sprinkled through the text everywhere you look, confirming the truth of the Bible itself? In verse 15, his intense thirst and dehydration. In verse 16, his pierced hands and feet. Verse 18, look there, they part my garments among them and cast lots on my vesture. His executioners, you remember the soldiers, gambled for his clothing at the foot of the cross. Psalm 69, I won't even turn over there. Verse 21, if you want to mark it in your Bible there. It even says that when he said he was thirsty, they gave him vinegar and wine to drink. Now, I've given you 10 specific prophecies of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Why, we believe that when he went to the cross, it wasn't just somebody's self-sacrificing love. It was the core of our Christian faith. That's why right up there in that baptistry, there's not a dove. It's not some other symbol. It's a cross because that, pardon me, that is Christianity. That is Christianity. You could take all of the life of Jesus Christ and you could take out six hours and you would no longer have the, you would no longer, or nine hours, I guess, you would ne- you take out the cross part of one day and you no longer have Christianity. You can talk about what a great example of love he was, the wonderful things he did, but that won't save you. The way back to God is redemption. And redemption was through the price of our sins being paid, the ransom price that Jesus referred to. Now go to one other passage because these two passages, and look, I could turn you to a hundred passages. We just don't have time. Or I do, do you? I do. (laughs) But let's go to the book of Isaiah, and let's go to chapter 50 first, and I'll show you just one of these prophecies of his redemptive work. Isaiah chapter 50 and verse number 6. I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off my hair. Do you remember that they pulled out his beard? Do you remember that they beat him, of course? I hid not my face from shame and spitting. You remember, read those crucifixion accounts, and every one of them talk about spitting in his face. There are three facts right there that were going to occur. Isaiah wrote 700 years before Christ came. 700 years. 700 years before Jesus arrived, a prophet wrote out three things They're going to pull out my beard, they're going to spit in my face, and they're going to beat me. Three specific facts about what would happen to Messiah. Chapter 52 and verse 14. As many were astonished at thee, his visage, meaning his facial appearance, was so marred more than any man in his form more than the sons of men. I'm not a movie goer, but I did go to see The Passion of the Christ back when it came out 10 10 years ago or more. And I sat there and I sobbed. I I couldn't handle it. 
And I saw them beat him. And you've seen that famous picture so often now. Bloodied all over. And they were beating him. And I wanted to scream at the screen and say, stop it. Enough. But I didn't. And I watched them beat him. And then they did the close-up of his face, which just made you shudder, the cruelty of it. And I thought, was he really in that bad a shape? And then I remembered this verse. His facial appearance was marred more than any other man. His form more than the sons of men. Yeah, it was as bad as Mel Gibson depicted it in the Passion of the Christ. Chapter 53 and verse 2. It talks about he'll grow up as a tender plant, as a root out of a dry ground. That's a miracle. Roots don't grow in dry ground. Roots grow in moist ground, don't they? So there's his miraculous birth. Chapter 53 and verse 3. He's despised and rejected of men. That really has the idea of men of high rank there, if you'll look at the marginal study. He is despised and rejected of the elite, the mainstream in the culture. Because the common people, Luke said the common people heard him gladly. The common people loved Jesus Christ. It was the political leadership that destroyed the Lord Jesus Christ when he came. Despised and rejected of man. And then, if you will look with me down in verse 5. He was wounded and he certainly was for our transgressions. The Messiah will be bruised. There's a second punishment for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. That's beating him. And with his stripes were healed. And you saw them beat him in the movies and the stripes that were upon him. And then if you will look in verse 7. Isaiah 53 and verse 7. I'll point out one thing there that I could point out more. We don't have time. Yet he opened not his mouth. And you remember how over and over and over in the Gospels it says that Jesus never responded and he was silent. He only spoke once at the very end. He opened not his mouth. And it says it twice in verse 7. In verse 8 it says he was cut off from the land of the living. And if you study that verse, it has the idea that nobody ever defended him. Of the 12 apostles, nobody stepped up to defend him. Of the multitudes that have followed him and listened to him, nobody defended him. He did not have one defender when he was paying the price of our redemption. Look in verse 9. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. And you remember how that his friend bought or loaned him his tomb? And you remember how that he was in that tomb for only three days, but that he was with the rich, that only, only the rich had those kinds of tombs? And then if you will notice with me, it says in verse number 10 that Jehovah will prolong his days down near the end of the verse. There's a prediction of the resurrection right there in the Old Testament, one of many. 
Jehovah will prolong his days, even though he's dead and, and all these other descriptions. God is going to prolong his days. He's going to give him life again. Verse 12, there's two things. He was numbered with the transgressors. In other words, it, Messiah would be identified with criminals. And the last part of it, he made intercession for the transgressors. You remember how he prayed and he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. There's the fulfillment of that. I gave you 10 prophecies in Psalm 22. I gave you 10 more prophecies in, in Isaiah 53. I'll give you four more generally. And so a total of 24 prophecies for this morning. In Zechariah 11 and 13, it says his price would be used to purchase a potter's field. And you remember that, jo, uh, that Judas threw the money down and they went and bought a place for indigent people to be buried. That's prophecy from Zechariah. If you were looking at Isaiah 53 and 9, well, I've already said that, haven't you? Buried in a rich man's tomb. These are prophecies after his death. Psalm 1610 prophesies that his body will not see corruption. He's not going to rot in a grave like all those other thieves of that time. He's going to be resurrected. His body will not corrupt. In Job 19 and 25, he'll be raised from the dead. And the Redeemer will stand one day at the latter days upon the earth again. The second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. 24 prophecies I've given to you. There are 333 about the, second, or the first advent of Jesus Christ. I've given you 24 this morning. And all of them have to do with his redemptive work. How he paid a price to purchase us back. Now in the light of that, Ephesians 1, 7, our text again. In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin, according to the riches of his grace. In Hebrews 9, 15 again, by his own blood, Jesus entered into the holy place in heaven, having obtained eternal redemption for us. So in the last two weeks, I've shown you plus or minus about 60 prophecies from the Old Testament hundreds of years prior that prophesied details about the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, and today specifically about his redemption. And I say again, if you don't know Christ, your state is desperate. And if you're, and if you're a Christian, but you're not right with the Lord, Think of what he paid for you and how much he loves you and what he has done for you in the light of these prophecies. And come back to him right now as you sit there in your seat. Every one of us need never forget that we're one heartbeat from eternity, that we have no guarantee of tomorrow, and you would have no hope whatever except for what I've preached today that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him has eternal life. Everything has been done to make your redemption complete. 
The only thing you have to do is believe. Faith is not an experience, ladies and gentlemen. Faith is not an experience. I say that again because so many people are into the experience stuff. Faith is not an experience. Faith is a belief. Belief in facts. Christ died. That's history. Christ died for me. That's salvation. Stand to your feet with me in prayer, please.